Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of The Porch Church. We hope today's message blesses you and encourages you in your spiritual journey. If you have questions, visit us on the web, www.theporchchurch.tv. Well, good morning. So glad that you're here this morning, and uh, I am overjoyed that school starts tomorrow. Yeah, like, it's just, yeah, praise God, right? Summer, we made it. Uh, This is the first year that we've had both boys at home outside of, like, full-time childcare, and uh, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. I know we have friends who are teachers here. We love you guys. We hope that you enjoyed your summer. Now get back to work. Like, that's all, I mean, from the bottom of my heart. Uh, We've been having fun this summer, like I'm sure many of you guys have in your family. Uh, We've gotten a little silly here in church, and I was just kind of reflecting. Like, if you go all the way back to Easter, right after Easter, we started our series Parenting Through Proverbs, where we looked at Dr. Seuss. We had some truffula trees on stage. We got a little silly. Then we went into Party, right, where we talked about lost things being found, and we talked about how God is a God who throws parties because he loves his people so much. And then we got really crazy last series. We talked about being in sync with God. I'm just happy that I don't have to wear a Justin Timberlake t-shirt today. Uh, I celebrated by wearing my porch shirt. This is what I chose to wear, and uh, that makes me happy. But we've gotten a little silly, church, okay? So it's just Bible for the next eight weeks, right? Like that's our, that's the punishment that we owe. No, I'm just kidding. We are going to, uh, we're going to spend some time digging into uh, a specific letter of the Bible though, right? We've been kind of topical, kind of just jumping around. And so for the next eight weeks or so, we're just going to launch into the book of Ephesians. We're going to dig a little bit deeper. We're going to spend our time just kind of going through scripture verse by verse. And I've learned my lesson, right? There are only six chapters in Ephesians, but there's way too much to talk about in six weeks, so we added a few weeks on there. I'm still not confident that we'll hit everything. We're still going to have to go kind of fast, but I'm excited uh, about this series, excited to be digging in with you a little bit, and so we are jumping in today uh, to the letter to the Ephesians, right? Written by Paul, at least that's what most scholars kind of come to agree to, but Paul writes this probably when he's in prison in Rome. If you know your church history, Paul's imprisoned at least two different times. This would be the latest of those times, probably about 60 AD, depending on how you count. He probably wrote this letter with another letter that we have in the New Testament called Colossians. There's a lot of similar themes, a lot of similar ideas, and the general consensus is that he probably wrote Colossians and then very shortly after that wrote Ephesians. He probably sent them back with the same guy. His name is Tychicus, which is just fun to say if you want to try it, Tychicus. And uh, probably send him back with him. Tychicus joined him when he was in Ephesus, and so he sent him back with some of these letters. What's interesting about Ephesians is that it it doesn't say in some of the earliest manuscripts that this is to the church at Ephesus. In other words, it was probably a circular letter uh, that Paul just sent by way of encouragement to the churches that were gathered in and around this region, right? Churches in this time didn't have buildings like this. They, They met in houses. They met in people's homes, and whenever somebody wanted to start a new church, They just go off and and kind of start a different small group. So it's very likely that Paul sent this letter meant to be read among a number of groups uh, of house churches. And Paul's very familiar with Ephesus. Again, I don't know how much you recall this in church history, but the Apostle Paul was found by Jesus. Remember, road to Damascus, he gets knocked off his donkey, and uh, he's blind. And then he comes to know who Jesus is, and he sets out then on three or four missionary journeys. We don't quite know how to count. 
don't quite know when he died, but there's evidence for three or four missionary journeys. In Ephesus, he visits twice, both at the end of the second missionary journey and at the beginning and end of the third missionary journey. As a matter of fact, Paul spent over three years, or just about three years, ministering to the people in Ephesus. This is the longest recorded time that we have of Paul being in one place establishing a church on his missionary journeys. He was at other places longer, but as far as starting and launching a church, he was in Ephesus about two and a half, three years, depending on which count we use. Translation, right, is that he knows these people, right? If he had a home church as a missionary, it was probably these guys. He spent years pouring into them and building them up. In fact, some fantastic things happened during his ministry in Ephesus. We read about them in Acts chapter 20. Let me just review some of these, see if any of these catch. Uh, He had a handkerchief that actually healed people, right? So it's like Paul blew his nose and then like wiped it on you and you were healed. I don't, I mean, we could try that. Anybody got a, no? Okay, we'll pass on that. We'll try later. We'll try later. He baptizes a couple of disciples, people who were given John's baptism, and he says, yeah, but have you received the Holy Spirit? And they go, what is that? He baptizes them in the Holy Spirit. They become the foundations, the leaders, the elders of this church in Ephesus. They meet in somebody's home named Tyrannius. Uh, There's a testimony about sorcerers being converted to Jesus, which just sounds cool. And like they burn all their scrolls and they totaled in like thousands of dollars of just stuff that they threw away because they discovered Jesus. As a matter of fact, Paul's ministry is so successful in Ephesus that the local people there uh, had a temple to the god Artemis, the goddess Artemis. uh, And there was a temple there. It's one of the ancient wonders of the world. And Paul's ministry was so effective that the silversmiths who would create little idols or create sacrifices for the goddess Artemis began to lose business. And so they started a riot to push Paul and these Christians out because they were hurting their business and defaming the name of their God. Paul's time in Ephesus is marked just by these crazy kinds of story. So we see in Ephesians that Paul is writing back to, to kind of his home church, right? These are his homies. These are his boys and girls. These are the people that he's walked through fire with. He's resisted riots through. He's hid in caves with. And unlike any of the other letters in the New Testament, Ephesians doesn't address a specific heresy, right? A lot of times when Paul is writing letters, he starts out with like, hey, I love you. What's up? I've heard some stuff, Okay. That's what Paul is writing for. He's like, hey, it's come to my attention that you need to straighten up, that this is out of order. In Ephesians, there's really none of that. He doesn't seem to be writing to correct anything. He just wants to write to encourage and exhort and to be a blessing and to remind them of who they are in Jesus. As a matter of fact, this is so profound. that actually Paul uses the word love. There are two words that Paul typically uses for love, and out of the 107 times he uses them, they appear 19 times in this one short letter, which is somewhere between one-fifth and one-sixth of the times that Paul uses this word love. It appears in Ephesians, right? This is a church that he loves deeply, that he wants them to know and understand the love of God and the love of Jesus and the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. This is a very, very uh, intimate letter that we get to experience with Paul writing to a known church, a known group of people, people that he loves very much. And this is critical because Ephesus, not Ephesians, that's not the name of the city, that's the name of the book. Ephesus is a really important city uh, kind of at this time. The population was about 300,000, which in Denver Metro is kind of like, 
whatever. But think about it, right? Like no, no cars, no automobiles, all this kinds of stuff. 300,000 was a large city, a large region. As a matter of fact, I got a little map for you here. Ephesus is kind of sitting right on a harbor that's since dried up, but it was sitting right there, and so it was a major waterway. There was a river and a port that ran out to sea. It was at cross-trade routes, so there were routes that would come in from Greece and from the east, and they would head to the west, down to Jerusalem. And so Ephesus is kind of this hustling, bustling city, right? There's all kinds of things going on. There's trade, there's traffic, there's people coming in and out, and it's in this place that Paul establishes kind of a a home base for ministry, a place that, that he comes back to and thinks about often. Let me just introduce us. There are a couple major themes that are going to come up as we spend our time in these next couple weeks, and there's some some big fun words, so I hope you had your coffee this morning. Three main themes that we're going to kind of address in the upcoming weeks. One is Christology. Christology. This is the doctrine, the theology about who Christ is, what is his, the greatness of Jesus, what he brings to the table, who he is, how he exists in the Trinity. How do we relate to Jesus? Christology is a major theme within the book of Ephesians. There's also soteriology, which is another big fun word that you'll never use outside of church. Uh, Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation, right? How do we understand our relationship with God? What does it mean that Jesus died for us to forgive us of our sins? What's our relationship to God because of Jesus? What's our relationship to the Holy Spirit because of Jesus? What is salvation anyway? He's going to talk about that, spell it out a little bit. But more than anything else in the book of Ephesians, writing to a church that he spent time with, that he doesn't have to address heresies and things that are going haywire, he says, let's just talk about church. Let's talk about ecclesiology, the theology or the doctrine of what it is to be a church, to be the people of God. What is that mean? How does that play out for us? He uses three powerful metaphors that are woven not only throughout this book, but are perhaps introduced or at least built upon. He uses the imagery of a body with Christ being the head and the church being the body that carries out the head's will. He uses the illustration of a bride, that Christ is the groom and that the church is the bride, which he gives himself up for to win over. It's a beautiful picture. And also a building, not quite as romantic, but nonetheless, he says, that the church is a building. It's a place that's inhabited by God where Jesus is the corner or capstone. So those are three kind of images that we're going to see throughout the letter of Ephesians. And again, there's so much to talk about here, so many things to do, that before we jump headlong in here, I just want to start by asking you guys to partner with us in this series, and to be involved in Ephesians as we go throughout the weeks here. So what that may look like for each of us is different, but my challenge to you is to read one chapter of of Ephesians once a day throughout this series. Eight weeks is a long time, I understand that, but part of the thing with Scripture is that it helps us to see connections, to connect the end of the letter to the beginning of the letter. Paul probably dictated his letters, which means he spoke like I'm speaking now, and somebody wrote, really, really fast to write them down. Um, But what that means is that as we connect thoughts and ideas together, we get to understand not only the words on the page, but the heart behind the letter that Paul is writing. So I want to encourage you to carry Ephesians with you as we go throughout this. That may mean reading the book once a week, right? One chapter a day. You can take Sunday off and just read one chapter a day, and we'll read Ephesians together. That may be too much for you. That's totally fine. Maybe just take the verses or the chapter or the section that we talk 
talk about. Maybe write one verse down on a note card and put it in your mirror or in your card or in your car and just kind of meditate or stew on it or chew on it. Maybe you want to read Ephesians together as a family, whether it's before dinner or before bedtime prayers, and just say, hey, we're talking about this in church. Let's read this story together as a family. And, and as you build on that over the upcoming weeks, you'll find that kids and the parents have all different kinds of conversations because Scripture has been woven into our lives. I also discovered a new app called Dwell, uh, and Dwell is a, is a listening app that has actors reading through uh, the Bible. Maybe it would help you to play Ephesians on your commute to or from work, just to listen to one chapter a day, just so that you know what we're talking about, where we're going, and how they're all going to connect together. Whatever it looks like for you, I want you to be connected in Ephesians. I built a little website, so if you go to porch.church backslash Bible, there's some reading plans there. There's a 21-day reading plan, a six-day reading plan. There's a five-day reading plan that kind of connects with the service today uh, that I just want to encourage you to, if you need the reminder on your phone, download the Bible app, and it'll buzz you once a day at a time that you select to say, hey, read chapter two of Ephesians, read chapter three of Ephesians. There's also a link to that Dwell app. So it's in your your worship folder there if you want to do it now or later. I don't care, but I just want us to carry Ephesians with us because if we just talk about it on Sunday morning, it's really missing the point of what we're talking about. I'd also encourage, before we move on, uh, to consider joining a life group. We're going to start life groups in the middle of this series. It's a great way to have conversations about the practical application of Scripture, of the messages on Sunday, and just go, hey, how does this affect my life? Or here is how this affected my life. Or we spoke about this on Sunday, and then this happened on Monday, and this was my prayer on Tuesday. That's the benefit of doing life together. It isn't just to show up at church and sit in rows and listen to me speak. It's to actually implement it into our lives. So as we go through the message and start this series, I just want to challenge you to think about your own life, think about your rhythm, and where you might be able to engage, to inject a little bit more of the gospel, of the book of Ephesians, of God's grace into your life by some intentional time. Sound good? Still with me? We wake out there? Woo! Let's jump in. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. If you brought your Bible, we'll start there. If you didn't bring your Bible, I'd encourage you to slip your hand up. Our ushers will give you a Bible. It looks just like this. And uh, we're on page 548 of these Bibles. And uh, you are welcome to follow along there. If you don't own a Bible, just keep this. It's our gift to you. We just want you to have God's Word in your life. Of course, all of our scriptures will be up on the screen as well. But Paul's going to start off uh, in the deep weeds with quite a bit of theology. So uh, let's jump in here. Ephesians chapter 1, we're just going to read verse by verse, starting at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from the God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very typical opening, right? This is almost how Paul starts every single letter. Very Pauline. It's the same words that he uses, and uh, this is just his standard greeting. Here's where he jumps in a little bit deeper than he perhaps usually does on letter, and he starts uh, another letter. And he starts off kind of just singing and praising God. It's kind of out of nowhere. Let's see what we can gain from reading this. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Let's pause there. Blessed us with every spiritual blessing. 
How many of you know when you're writing too fast and you end up like just saying the same word kind of over and over again just in different sentences? Anybody, right? You're typing too fast. You're like blessing and blessed and be blessed. Paul uses the word blessed three times in two sentences, right? So what is that? He's excited, right? He's got something to say. He may not quite be thinking straight. He's just inspired to say, man, Ephesus, Ephesians, you guys have so much blessing. God has blessed you with every blessing, everything in the spiritual realm. You're blessed. You're blessed. You're blessed. He just wants them to get this concept. It's uncanny. It's not like any other of Paul's writings. Verse 4, for he, we're still speaking about God, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Wow. Lots in there. Lots of things to unpack. Lots of things to go through. Again, he's excited, and we've just been kind of talking about parties. We've been listening to NSYNC, so everybody stretch a little bit, right? Get on your theological thinking caps, and uh, let's jump into some deep weeds here. Here's the first point. God says, he says that in God you've been given every spiritual blessing. So you have spiritual blessings from the Father. You have spiritual blessings from the Father. As a matter of fact, he says, hey, everything that you need, right, every spiritual blessing is yours from God the Father in Jesus Christ. He reminds them and he reminds us that this was God's plan from the beginning of the world, that we might have redemption and adoption through Jesus Christ to become a son or daughter of him. Notice that word blameless in his sight. This has to do with redemption and righteousness. Paul wants to remind us, remind his hearers and his readers that in Jesus, while we may have guilt, while we may have sin from our past way of life, that through redemption, through the cross, through his shed blood, that we are blameless in his sight. That we are not guilty, that the, that the crimes don't stick to us, that we've been forgiven, we've been pardoned, that we are innocent, white as snow. And I don't know where you're at this morning, but that's good news. News, right? That's good news that God doesn't count our sins against us, that we are forgiven in Jesus, that when God sees us, he's so filled with love and compassion that we are blameless in his sight, that we are pure and sparkling white. This is a beautiful truth about the spiritual blessings that we've been given in Jesus from the Father. Right? He knew our sins and shortcomings beforehand. It says he chose us, he predestined us. We'll get to that word here in a minute. That the blame that we would incur, and he decided before we ever messed up that he would pay the penalty for our mistakes. Right? This is like a dad who, before the kid goes off to college, not only pays for the gas in the car, pays the insurance, he pays the entire college tuition, and he goes to the dean and he's like, here's the deal, my kid's going to break something. And uh, here's just a blank check. So when that happens, right? You just fill in the amount, I'll take care of it. Such is the love that God gives us as his children. And again, he planned it before we were even a dream in our mother's eyes, before creation, the foundation of the world, right? Good news, God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. Let's keep moving. Verse 5. It says, in love, he predestined us for adoption, right? Love, we already see that theme creeping in. This is uh, the major word that Paul is going to use throughout this. But 
Too often we get stuck on that word predestined, right? It's a big, complex theological word. It's complex in the Greek. It's complex for us. As a matter of fact, churches get divided and Christians kind of fight over what this word means and kind of how it plays out. Some people would go, well, when the word predestined appears, that means that God simply makes the choice, right? That before the foundations of the world, God chose and he predestined. And so he says, you're in, you're out. You're going to heaven, you're going to hell. He says that that's one of the ways to interpret this kind of word that God just simply chooses because he knows the outcome. There's another way to think about this term, another perhaps uh, more round way to look at it or more robust, and that's that he predestined the ways in which we would come to him. That before the foundations of the world, he set Jesus up as the example and the sample for us. And so it's not that he predestined individuals, you're in, you're out, yes, no, yes, no, but more so that he foreordained knowing the way in which we would come to grace and forgiveness in him. Now, those two schools of thought have been fighting for literally thousands of years. They've divided very good and loving people, and so we're not going to solve that tension today. Uh, But I I do just want to say this, and I want to say it very, very clearly. No matter which of those ideas you agree with, God wants everybody to be saved, right? Second Peter says that it's God's will that everyone would be saved and come to faith in Jesus. That's God's will for all mankind. And so if your theology paints God in a picture where it's anything other than his goodwill and pleasure to save people, I'm not sure that I want to follow your God. I'm not sure that that's the God that's played out in Scripture because God says that it was his joy that he foreordained and predestined all people for adoption. If God's joy is sending people to hell, we're talking about a very different God than the one that is pictured in the New Testament. So no matter your theology behind that word predestined, we can go to coffee and talk till we're blue in the face so long as we agree at the end of it to love each other and that God speaks clearly to all of us. But the reality is that when we say predestined, I don't believe that God is up there willy-nilly going, you're in, you're out. I believe that God is going, this is the path to follow, and I believe that you can make those choices, and I know that there are people who won't make that choice, but that grieves and breaks his heart. It's his joy to adopt us as sons and daughters of the king. It's his joy to give us a glorious inheritance. So don't let that word trip you up. It's going to come up again in a couple of verses, but according to this passage, God is a God who wants to adopt us. Such is the image of the God that we serve. So not only have we been blessed with every spiritual blessing in and from the Father, but we have spiritual blessings in the Son as well. Spiritual blessings in the Son. Let's pick up uh, at verse 7, I believe. In Him, now we're talking about Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished Upon us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, listen to this, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. We see the same thing, right? Redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sin. And he spells it out so clearly. He says this is the riches of his glorious grace that the Father has lavished upon us. Think about that word lavished. Have you ever lavished someone? 
Have you ever been lavished, right? Maybe like your spouse, like when you were dating and you were like really trying to impress them, right? Sometimes for a birthday, maybe you would feel that you're just lavish. But lavish has to do with like extravagance, right? Like, whoa, 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 this is too, like I couldn't possibly accept this. It's too expensive. It's too much in excess. I couldn't possibly receive this gift. It's too lavish. This is the word that Paul uses to describe the riches of God's glorious grace. The, the Greek word literally means to provide more than needed, to be given in excess. This is an excessive gift. It's to cause to be more or to multiply. This is what grace looks like in God. Again, it's that blank check to cover every expense. It's lavish. It's too much. And God's grace is lavished upon us in the redemption and forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, right? Through Jesus, God also clues us in to his end game. You know, people are always going like, what's the purpose of life? What are we alive for? What is this all about? God says, hey, this is my plan from the foundations of the earth. This is what it's all been leading up to. Unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Unity under Christ is what the whole aim of creation and Jesus and you and me, it's what God is bringing about in the world today. And I don't know if you watch the news ever, unity is something that we need <laughs> pretty, pretty seriously. Right? We're celebrating the one-year anniversary of the Charlottesville tragedy where one person tragically lost their life, and I know that there are people on both sides of the aisle who are there declaring whatever they're declaring this week, but can we agree that we need some unity together in this country, whether it's around gender or politics or racism or socioeconomic backgrounds or immigration? We're divided we're fighting against each other. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, it doesn't even matter. We need some unity. And what God says, hey, what I'm working to create, what I'm working to bring about is a unity between not only people on earth, but unity between heaven and between earth where Christ is the head of both. This is the point. This is the mission. This is why Jesus comes. Not only that, but it's why we are invited to participate in this divine experiment, that we would be the first fruits, the, the forebearers of what Jesus is doing, of what God is doing through Jesus, making heaven and earth one, to bring everything under Jesus. I'm trying to find the exact word that I want to use here. Let's read here, verse 11. Here's how Paul says it. It says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined, there's that word again, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. In order that we who believed first, God, he's saying, hey, the reason that we have Christ here and now, the reason why we come in to know God on this side of eternity is so that we can be participants in bringing about the unity between heaven and earth, right? This is what Jesus prays when his disciples say, hey, Lord, how should we pray? He says, make things on earth just as they are in heaven. Be peacemakers, be carriers of unity into the world around me. And not just unity and uniformity, right? Don't just agree with people to agree with people, but under the headship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. This was his plan. This is what he purposed for us to do, that we as first fruits might actually be involved in the salvation of the rest of the world, that we might bring unity. What would that look like on your street? 
What would that look like at your place of work? What would that look like in the supermarket, in your relationships with your coworkers, with the people that you drive past on the street? What does it look like for us to be kingdom participants in making it on earth just as it is in heaven? This is the will of God. This was his purpose from before the foundations of the world. Unity between heaven and earth under Christ. And in Jesus, we have every spiritual blessing that we need to accomplish this plan. It's why God gives us His Holy Spirit. See, we aren't predestined to be separate. We're predestined to be like Christ and to bring about His work and Word in the world around us. This is the blessing of adoption and being a part of God's family. What's the mark of that adoption? He continues in verse 13 with the spiritual blessings of the Holy Spirit. The spiritual blessings of the Holy Spirit. Verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, right? The promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, our adoption, until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Again, he repeats himself. At the end of the last paragraph, he uses that phrase, to the praise of His glory. He says it again here. Paul is so elated that he's, he's kind of just stringing words and thoughts together. He doesn't know how to convey the depth of what he wants to say here. This Holy Spirit is the mark of our adoption. It's our inheritance in God's kingdom, that we belong to him and to his kingdom, that we are image bearers of the divine belong to dad. Right? This is why in the last series we kept talking about being in step with the Spirit, because He's the power source. He's the connection point that we have with God. What does the deposit ensure? Heaven? Yeah, absolutely, but it's so much more than that. It's about the kingdom of God coming into reality here and now. But it's more than the unification of here and now. It's the then and coming kingdom as well. This is Jesus' own words, right? The kingdom of God, the fullness of God's presence is within you. It's yours. Now go and make it a reality. Go and make the world around you conform to what's already true in heaven just as it is on earth. Make it a reality in your own life. Make it a reality in your family. Make it a reality in your drive to work, in your walk to school, in your work relationship with your boss and your coworkers, with your neighborhood, that the entire world may see the glorious riches of God lavished out for them in your life and would so come under the unity of Christ's headship. See, Paul is writing to say how great God is, and he can't contain himself with the love that God has displayed in Jesus and in the person of the Holy Spirit for us. And so again, I want to invite you as we step into Ephesians to read along as Paul develops these thoughts, to carry it with you so that we can chew on it and let it seep in. Right? Whether you read all of Ephesians or you read one chapter a day or you just take a couple verses to think about and chew on throughout the week, we have to translate this spiritual reality into our world. See, Paul's message is that we have everything that we need to accomplish what God has called us to do. Everything that you need, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing through Jesus in the Father and because of the Holy Spirit. So the question for us today is, so what would it do if we actually started living that way? 
What would we do if we actually believed that every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ Jesus? That we are bringing about the unification of heaven and earth and that that was our number one full-time sole job in the world, to make it on earth just as it is in heaven? What would it look like for us to believe that God has given us everything in the spiritual places to be able to accomplish His divine purpose for us? We've been given everything that we need in Christ, not maybe to live a comfortable life, maybe not to live a lavish lifestyle or to have no problems, but we have everything that we need to bring all of creation under the lordship of Jesus Christ, to make the kingdom of God come here and now. If we lived like that, how would our lives be different? How would your life be different? What areas need the lordship, the headship of Jesus Christ? What areas in your life are divided and need to be brought together? Where does the secular and spiritual divide happen for you? Does it happen the second you step out of these doors and get into your car? Does it happen when you pull your car into the driveway and you're at home now and you can let down maybe the false self that you portray? Maybe for you, you're fine at church, you're fine at home, you're fine in your close relationships, but when you show up to work, man, it's a whole different ballgame, and people couldn't possibly know who you are and what you believe in because you'd be ridiculed, you'd be ostracized, you'd be looked over. What does it look like that you've been given every spiritual blessing to bring about unity in that place? Maybe it's your close relationships and you're saying, man, there's nobody who believes the way that I do that I'm close with in my family and my friendships and the people in my neighborhood. What does it look like for you to usher in Christ and to be one united person, not to be a religious bigot or freak, right, or stand on the corner with a megaphone, but what does it look like simply to be present in bringing about God's kingdom in every single place where you go throughout your life? You have everything that you need to accomplish everything that God has asked you to do. So where are you lacking? Where are you not stepping in? Where are you saying, I don't have enough to accomplish that? I would just encourage you to let God speak into that this morning. Paul ends chapter 1 with a way that he does in many of his letters. He ends with a prayer over his people. He kind of invites people into his prayer life. He says, when I pray about you, I, I, I pray this way. And so as we end Ephesians chapter 1, I've been reading and thinking and stewing on this, and I would like to pray it over us as a church as kind of a doxology, as a blessing, right? A very traditional element of church is that at the end of the service, there would be a sending prayer in which we would be invited to live out those participants. But in this letter, Paul kind of says, this is how I pray for you. And, and this week, I'd like to come alongside Paul and say, this week, this is how I've been praying for us. This is how I've been praying for you, that these things would happen in our midst and in our Live. So I'm going to read the prayer that Paul has for the church at Ephesus. And I'd like to ask you to stand and to receive it as a blessing. So would you stand with me? And I'm going to invite you to take whatever posture of prayer might be convenient or comfortable for you. That might be head bowed, eyes closed, arms folded. It might be a posture of, of open hands, head up high, looking to the heavens. But whatever it is for you, I want you to receive this prayer that Paul prayed some 2,000 years ago and to pray it yourself, to pray that this would be our reality as a church, that as we seek to unify the kingdom of God under the lordship of Christ, that it would be on earth just as it is in heaven. Hear the words of Paul this morning. For this reason, 
Ever since I have heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you be the fullness who fulfills everything in every way? God, I want to learn the power of your spirit, the power of your wisdom and your revelation. God, that you would bring about fullness in every corner, not only of our lives or the lives of this church, but in our communities, in our work lives, that all the world would be under the headship and lordship of Jesus Christ, that we would be unified in your calling for us, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened to see your glorious riches and grace and that your power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, that worked miracles through a handkerchief, God, that that would live and reside in us, your people, not just so that we can go out and do cool stuff, but so that the presence of God, that the Holy Spirit might come, that hearts might be convicted and so turn to follow you that they might come to know the lavish grace that you've lavished upon us, your children, the excessive gift of love that you give to us. God, would you make that real in our hearts and in our minds under the banner of the Lordship of Jesus Christ? God, we pray all of these things through the spiritual blessings of the Father who's given us everything and fills everything in every way. What in your life needs to be filled with the presence of God? It's yours in the Father. It's yours in Jesus Christ who forgave us, redeemed us, purchased us with his blood that we might be blameless in his sight and the power of the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in the hearts and the minds of you. Take and receive the blessing of God this morning. All God's people agreed together and said, Amen. We're going to spend some time singing together. 